This is Disaster Tales. Hi, I'm Kate Fairweather, and today on Disaster Tales, we're interviewing Diane Burden-Cox, a psychologist, CEO of Disaster Scope Incorporated, an emergency management consulting firm, and the author of Resilient Americans, We May Not Have It All Together, But Together We Have It All. Welcome, Diane. How are you today? Thank you. So glad to be here, Kate. Doing well. Good. Um, I was reading your book and I was <laughs> and I was I was reading it thinking, boy, we were raised I think you're a year younger than I am, so we were raised in the same atmosphere the entire time and we have a we have a, done a lot of things that are the same. <laughs> so oh, that's so that's so interesting. And I grew up in Southern California. Where did you grow up? I grew up in upstate New York. Oh, upstate New York. Mm-hmm. Cow country. My grandmother had a farm, and we lived in, first we lived out in the country, then we lived in Owego, which is a small town near the Pennsylvania border, hmm. and I really enjoyed being outside when I was there, so. Uh, well, we worked in upstate New York on one of the hurricanes, I think. We were based in Albany, mm-hmm. and I don't remember the year, but that gave us a little bit of a view of the state for some months. Um, yep. So you, I, when we chatted the other day, and we don't know each other, but when we chatted the other day, you mentioned that you had childhood stories of disaster. And I tell, in the book, I tell a couple stories, I think, about er, an earthquake when I was a child. Mm-hmm. But, but you, had, you had a different experience. I think you had said it was either with a storm surge or a flood or... Yeah, it was Hurricane Agnes. Hurricane Agnes came in and it rained for 10 days, day and night. And my sister and I, when we got a little break in the weather, we had gone on our bicycles down to um, a place called Marvin Park, which had a playground. It was also the fairgrounds and it was between the Owego Creek and the Susquehanna River, kind of like a wedge. Well, while we were out there, I looked over and I saw about a six inch wall of water coming towards us and so I told my sister we need to get on our bikes and leave and we did but as we were leaving the water just kept getting higher and higher and higher until it was up to my waist and it was up to my sister's chest oh my goodness and we finally got to the the driveway that went up above the uh, fairgrounds and got up there but we were it was it was a little bit scary (laughs) <laughs> oh my goodness. I mean, it sounds life and death almost when you're a child and mm-hmm. you you start with six inches and you think you're good. Um, that kind of uh, water at, uh, that deep is a disaster. <laughs> it definitely is. And the, the town flooded that year and everything down, down river from it flooded. So it flooded in Sarah, Pennsylvania, which is pretty wow. close to we go but it also it also mm-hmm. flooded in um harrisburg pennsylvania because the susquehanna goes through there too so you became aware of disasters really young which is something that i found fascinating and like you said was a little bit similar in our stories mm-hmm. that we were both aware and the other thing was there another experience that you had it seems to me that there was something that almost 
summoned you into wanting to do good for others or help others in as you were growing up? Yeah, there was. There was um, when I when we lived out in the country, um, we lived right by the the state interstate, which was two lane road at the time. And my dad ran a service station and worked on cars and he used them. He'd take the cars and he'd fix them up and then use them in demolition derby on the weekends. So that was fun. But one day this elderly couple came walking up to our house with their bags and they, they said, and they, and they were, had very thick accents. They, uh, and they said, we're, our car just, you know, broke. Is there any, can you, let us use your phone or anything like that and my dad said let me go look so he went and looked and I don't know what happened to the car but when he came back he said I can't do anything with that car oh my goodness and they had they were had left Europe where they lost their children in the concentration camps oh wow and their name was Ivanovsky and they were on their way to Binghamton which had a big um, Eastern European population Mm. And it was about 30 miles away, but it was, they had just gotten this far and it was as far as they could go. So my dad turned around and looked at the car he'd been working on for the Derby. And he said, just take this, you can have this. Mm. And they, they were just totally shocked. And Mr. Ivanovsky started crying and Mrs. Ivanovsky got down on her hands and knees and kissed my mother's feet. Oh my goodness. And my sister and I were just standing there going, Wow. Right. And and that really gave us a sense of why you should do good for people. Mm. My dad was a really good example of that. He mm. was he was and that incident really stuck with both of us. You know, I and it illustrates so much a point that I was trying to make in in the book. Oh, and I wanted to circle back onto your introduction. I appreciate it. And I'm not a a licensed psychologist. So I have a background in mental health and I've worked uh, with the Mental Health Association, but I didn't want to have any credentials that I don't deserve. (laughs) (laughs) I actually meant to ask you that before I did that intro, but it slipped my mind. So yeah, yeah, well, we gave you a little promotion for for an hour, you know. Thank you. Thank you. It feels good. (laughs) Have a few more letters there. Um, But uh, the thing that strikes me that I think is so pertinent to disaster work in particular, but to society in general, is exactly what you just did by telling us that story, is what are the stories that shaped us as children, and um, how how are we beginning to frame the world and understand what, what kind of place the world was? And to see as a child someone be so grateful that they even do something that's outside of our culture. I mean, that's not American culture to get down and kiss someone's feet, but that shows such a overflow of gratitude that, and I can only imagine that both your sister and you just, your hearts leap. Your it it just, it's, it's, um, energizing and catalyzing, I think, to the an experience, especially like that. And I, I tend to believe that most people have different kinds of childhood stories that that persuade them of some truth. And you're at least this one truth is I need to help people, mm-hmm. and it's led you into emergency management. Yep, the long way, but I got here. 
(laughs) You know, uh, you've said that, and I'd be interested to know what the long way was, because all of us who show up, I mean, really right now, what we're doing is what we do when we're on site at a disaster, is we get to know the people that are ending up being boots on the ground and trying to help the community recover. And you and I, I think, are both relational people. And so Mm -hmm. when we get there, I think we tend to say, okay, who's here? What resources do we have both um, um, as a system and an organization, you know, with, within our organizations, but also what kinds of people are around me and who are we and what, what can we resource together from just who we are? And I hear that so much in your story, um, especially kind of your self-deprecating that you had done the other, the other day when we were talking. It's like, yeah, it took me a while took me a while to get here. (laughs) And yet you were working, you've said for decades in emergency management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am. Well, I used to, I was kind of the kid who handled emergencies. A Mm. lot of times in my family, I was the oldest out of six. My sister, Barb, who's also my co-host on here a lot. She also did that. She did a lot of the tending the children work. Mm -hmm. And, but I know that, um, my brother, when he was a baby, he fell out of his crib and cut his side of his cheek open. And I was in fourth grade and my mother came and got me out of school so that I could oh go goodness. with her to the hospital with him. Cause she was freaking out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and so I was sitting there with the baby in the front seat. That was before seat belts and car seats. And, um, my mother was driving and upset and going off the side of the road. And I was like, you worry, you drive and I'll worry. And then when you're done driving, you can worry. Wow. So. Okay. And you were 10, <laughs> 10 yeah, or 11, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. There about. Yeah. Wow. So those kinds of stories in childhood shaped you. Did you end up um, knowing as you came out of high school what you wanted for a degree or a career because we certainly didn't that's not how we arrived (laughs) in disaster work (laughs) so yeah um I originally like a lot of kids just I wanted to be a teacher I went to Catholic school and I and I my dad flew a lot when we were growing up so I wanted to be a nun who flew around and taught That's a great image. <laughs> Flying That's nun right. comes exactly. to mind an old TV show for those who are too young to know. Yes. <laughs> oh, how cool. So tell us a little bit about your journey towards that. Well, um, so Graham and I have two different backgrounds. We got married out of college and my interest was actually geriatric psychology. And so my undergrad work was in sociology, organizational sociology, just so that you could kind of look at culture and then uh, psychology, and especially uh, as it pertained to individuals' mental health. And there wasn't something called positive psychology back in the day, but that was really my interest is why were different adults in my life as I grew up and um, why were they some so um, sparked by love and relationship and joy and all, and why were others having difficulty and how could we as communities sort of um, thought was age well together. I really had a respect for older people and their wisdom because of some of the people that were in my life. So that was my background. Graham's was engineering in alternative energy, mostly um, for a public utility in Sacramento. 
California. And um, so, and then he had segued into construction and we had our little boys. So I, um, I was working more minimally at the time that the Northridge earthquake hit. And um, from construction, uh, we found out through another, uh, through a neighbor actually, just the, uh, a couple down the street, that the governor's office was hiring folks that had backgrounds in engineering and construction to help after the Northridge earthquake. And because our family was down here, I don't know that we would have uh, sparked to it the way that we did, but because our family was down here, friends, we had a sense of the devastation, uh, we wanted to come down and help. And it just seemed a perfect opportunity to do that. And, and then that was it. So one thing <laughs> led to another. Now, the Northridge earthquake happened in uh, near Los Angeles, correct? Right. The Northridge okay. earthquake was in Los Angeles County. So what we call out in the valley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember seeing that on television and seeing the, the collapsed highways. Yeah. yeah. Hospitals were another infrastructure piece that really fell down. And that really, I think that piece as a child was, was, yeah important to me, just along the lines of what you just shared about your story. Uh, for us, my, my folks were just really grounded people and, and they still are, they're still alive. Um, but so that it shook us up, the Northridge earthquake here um, uh, in the San Gabriel Valley, but we didn't have, we had chimneys fall. We had some foundational issues for some houses, but not the devastation of Northridge. And so for us, it was a little bit more exciting. It had been like, whoa, the whole house shook. It was like, I, I compare it to an e-ticket ride at Disneyland. It was like, woo, that was sort of got your <laughs> adrenaline going. And and our family kind of held on to that sensation the first day, especially when they decided to cancel schools in LA County. So we were all like, yay, you know, day <laughs> off. Until Snow we day. started, yes, exactly, exactly <laughs> like that. Um, until we began to see the images of the hospital. Well, the freeways falling was certainly scary, but then, um, uh, oh, you know what? And sorry, I'm talking about two different earthquakes. I am so sorry. That's okay. Um, the Northridge earthquake. Yeah, uh, <laughs> no, it was the um, the it was Simi Valley. Um, I think so. Gosh, I've, so there was an earthquake in 1972, and that earthquake influenced our desire for um, the the work in the Northridge earthquake. So I am so sorry for the confusion, folks. But um, yeah, <laughs> Not a that big also story. yeah, we're confused also, a lot here. <laughs> yes, I know, right? <laughs> That's sort of par for the course. Um, <laughs> uh, is uh, the rallying, and that's actually what we mean by resilience. Is can we rally? So that experience as a kid um, and the hospitals and seeing those collapses was really influential, I think, in understanding um, how much infrastructure matters uh, for one. Uh, and then secondly, just how disasters change communities. So Yeah, that's, uh, it's interesting. I think one of the things that you talked about in your book, or we talked about personally, um, is that uh, a lot of times different parts of the community suffer. Right. Like um, in Owego, we had an area that had trailers and, and kind of shacks and things like that called Kanawani. 
And mm. that was the first part of the town to flood. And it mm. flooded big enough to where they were sending out boats to get people out of their houses. Yeah. I think, yeah, I, that's one of the general topics I cover in the book. And uh, we did talk about it of just how, because we've both seen it, of how often disasters most often devastate the most vulnerable parts of a community. And and sometimes then uh, that has ripple effects, and, and usually it has ripple effects into the larger community. And I think often people don't recognize that if we don't all thrive together, especially after after a disaster, we're not going to thrive again because those parts of the community are often providing essential services. And I, I think that that's becoming more apparent in the COVID disaster of mm-hmm. just how service industries, um, folks in service industries are an essential part and that word's been used so much, but of our mm-hmm. infrastructure, our human infrastructure, and ch- I would add things like childcare, the the things that maybe people uh, aren't always aware of in a disaster is that that economically challenged or um, uh, challenged in other ways uh, because of um, what I would call systemic uh, issues that are in our country having to do with uh, race and poverty and uh, uh, access to services and things like that, that, um, that those, those aspects, research shows us too, have a whole lot to do with how well a community recovers. That's right. Yeah. The, uh, the major damage in Hurricane Katrina was in the poor part of town, that ninth ward, um, Mm. the more wealthy parts of parts of town actually have higher elevations right and then i know that on the west coast i can't remember exactly where it was but um the the lower income community was on um like reclaimed ground so that if there's an earthquake the liquefaction destroys their houses faster than the people right. up on the hills yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think there must be like there's there's a lot of research around this and all, but that that kind of development that um, is in those those kinds of vulnerable spaces are often lower income. However, as you know from working the fires in California, that sometimes privilege can also put you in the at least in California put you in the wild face the wildfire interface because you're, you're up in places that are uh, um, beautiful and, but up next to forests and all that are, I I do want to just say this for our listeners. A lot of people don't realize that in California and I don't know about the rest of the West where these fires are happening. A lot of our public land, most of our public land um, is federally um, overseen. So that would be federal dollars that would help us maintain the forest floors and, and do, do the raking. Um, yeah, do the, yeah, <laughs> do the pruning and the, the, the maintenance and all. And it, and again, from our work, we know that policy really influences those things and policy moves slowly. It, it's something that you need bipartisan buy-on, uh, buy-in to, to shape and to structure. And so again, that's why our relationships in our country are so important which is the point I'm making in the book. It's like, <laughs> let's get along, people. <laughs> yes, and, I, and that's a wonderful book. I've been I've been listening to it, and uh, 
it's I'm really enjoying it. It's, uh, thank you. It is. Um, thank you. Well, my hope is that it, it sparks dialogue, that it uh, sparks a conversation like we're having today mm-hmm. where we're saying, well, here's what I experienced. And now what did you experience? And I I love that your work has led you to individual assistance because within the world of FEMA, individual assistance, that's IA, is different from public assistance, which is PA, and the two don't communicate all that much amongst us. Um, And yet, right, and yet um, the information coming in through individual assistance would be such a benefit, I think to public assistance and then to shaping policy. But we don't have those mechanisms um, amongst ourselves, those of us who are in the the trenches working. So Um, when you're talking about public assistance, what does that mean? So when we're talking about public assistance, it's a program, the PA program. It's influenced by the Stafford Act, which was um, uh, an act back... 1974 as amended. <laughs> and that's what Kate and I have discovered in talking is Kate has an education in emergency management, whereas Graham and I don't. And so Kate has, um, as we were uh, talking uh, the other day, just to set this time up, I was going, wow, I, I wish I had an emergency management degree because <laughs> of how much more Kate knows than me. So, um, but uh, I wouldn't say I know more, maybe different different thank you well and that's just the thing it's like I mean that just to segue again before I answer the PA fully answer the PA question um, I think all the people in a community who have been through disaster know a lot and everybody's a stakeholder and everybody is educated in the way of disaster and many of the people who are doing disaster work have themselves been through disaster in some way and recognized on some level Something more needs to be done, um, and uh, we that's haven't. How, yeah, we haven't gotten there yet. Go ahead. That's that's how we pick up a lot of our reservists. Is they've been through a disaster, they work mm-hmm. at the disaster, and then FEMA hires them. Yeah. So public assistance, which and we should like flip back to reservists and and different things, but um, the the in in FEMA public assistance represents the monies that are moving from the federal government to the state government, then to the local entities. And so when we are talking about local entities, sometimes that's just a city. Um, If it's a federally declared disaster, it's usually a um, uh, 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 more regional and often involves more than just uh, one county. It usually involves multiple counties or parishes and And sometimes now, multiple states. Yeah. Now FEMA actually declares disasters by county. So. Oh, good to know. I think I know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, they declare it by county, and then funds of uh, 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 when funds start moving, and we're deployed. We're deployed after a a larger declaration. Um, uh, it takes more to get us moving, whereas I think reservists and individual assistance uh, is deployed more readily. Is that the case? Yeah, we they start to um, deploy us after the the um, declaration from the president. And generally we're there 
we're not there as fast as the Red Cross, but we're there within several days. We have to be ready to leave in 24 hours notice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we're usually, we're on a 24-hour or sometimes 72-hour sort of notice to leave, um, but we are usually being dangled for longer, like thinking that we might be deployed for um, weeks or months even. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been, it's been a hard business model, but a, um, a probably good model for the community. So, so, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to ask, so uh, your company, which is Disaster Scope Inc., mm-hmm. um, so what would you do, what was your first disaster that you went to as as that consulting firm? Well, um, before we actually licensed as that, we were working in partnership, Graham and I, um, and after the Northridge earthquake, one of the individual uh, clients, one of the applicants was uh, Los Angeles uh, Unified School District, which is huge, and they were having a lot of issues. And so when the state pulled out, we recognized that the folks there needed a whole lot more help to get their funds. And so we just kind of started working as consultants there um, uh, and then gradually started um, building something more of a business. So that was our it was still the Northridge earthquake, essentially, that was our first uh, client uh, through LA Unified. But then the first time we deployed outside of the state was for Katrina. Mm-hmm. So that was our first, and it was it was huge and a big a big learning curve for us. It was huge, and I know one of the things you talked in, about in your book. Um, which is in-kind donations that you were managing. Oh, yeah, right. Um, And and Hurricane Andrew, I know, they had so many in-kind donations come from that that they ended up, they had, like, clothes that were sent and things that they didn't have the manpower to distribute or even sort through, and they ended up digging a hole and burying it. I think people don't realize, like, how much of a problem that is, that they're, they're good Good-heartedness, open-heartedness, which I think is really a characteristic of of Americans, mm-hmm. um, uh, becomes very, very problematic in a in a disaster. And during Katrina, um, it w- became evident with uh, roads being blocked by rigs that hadn't factored in how devastated the landscape was. And it frequently happens that. Um, that there's not gas, you, you can't get gasoline, so you can right. get there. Or people who show up, I know that there have been a lot of people who've wanted to be helpful, uh, who show up at disasters, not recognizing that they needed to have brought all their own food, all their own water, the ability to do their own sanitation, uh, sewage, what, whatever it is, that just showing up to help only um, burdens the infrastructure further if they're not prepared to take care of themselves, which is um, what so many organizations are sometimes better equipped to do. Well, there's a, a stark contrast between those and organized, the, the VOADs, the Voluntary Organizations yeah. Active in Disaster. I know that during Katrina, because I sat next to the staging place, um, we had firefighters come from all over and just show up and say, mm-hmm. we're here, we're ready to help, we can help do rescues and everything else. And, but there was no place for them to stay. We had to open yeah. up a dormitory on the top floor 
and then or on the second to the top floor i can't remember but um and then there's the on the other end of the scale when the amish disaster relief workers came they said all we need is a place to sleep take a shower and a place for the women to cook Hmm. And so if we could provide them with that, they come in and what they do is they come in for two weeks, they do um, building repair, and then they go home and other people come and take their place for two weeks because Hmm. they take, the community takes care of the family while they're gone. Right. We've, um, we've seen such uh, efficiency in some of the nonprofits, and it's really heartening to see. And what I think is one of the key aspects of the ones that work and the ones that don't is communication and usually some sort of relational connection to the community that they're coming toward, like some sort of way of, of communicating within the systems that are operating. And um, I know that um, I think it's a seventh day. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't want to say something that's not true, <laughs> but some of the different, um, yeah, Seventh-day Adventists, where I've been, usually deal with clothing donations. Oh, have you? St. Vincent so, de Paul. Yeah. Um, so problematic or helpful? Helpful. Oh, good. Yeah. So um, but I don't know if you know, I uh, um, at a conference I was at, I talked to one of the folks from um, Waffle House. And Waffle House is another one. I mean, their organization, profit-making restaurant, whatever, uh, has a savvy about disasters and just so enjoyed my conversation in mm-hmm. uh, hearing yeah. about how how they work within the community and how they don't become a burden to the uh, to the infrastructure. Um, yeah, we we had a tornado that hit near here, and one of the the parent of one of the boys my son went to school with owned the Dairy Queens up there, owned some down here. And it, and it just, it blew out all the windows in his Dairy Queen. And of course he couldn't use any of his stuff because it was all contaminated. And he, and he realized that, um, that he needed to make preparations for the other (laughs) stores. And he ended up really joining and, and becoming a part of the response Right. So that he would he would send food from the ones that worked uh, to the workers and the people that were that were needing food from experiencing the disaster. So, yeah, and the, this is what I would say is a good way for businesses that want to get involved in being a help to a, a community's resilience. To me, that would be that they would access through the national uh, VOAD. Mm-hmm. So volunteers, uh, voluntary organizations active in disaster. And then you, you, generally speaking, there's a local VOAD as well. And um, But then there, there, there's all kinds of other ways. Maybe you know some. Uh, well, one of the things that I would, I would recommend is that they get involved in their local emergency planning commission. Uh, The LEPCs are usually, at least by county, sometimes by municipality, and and joining that that committee um, would give them an opportunity to decide what they could and would not be able to do in a disaster and work towards making the immediate response and then recovery easier on everybody. Right. Yeah. No, that's a great recommendation. Um, to circle back to what public uh, public assistance does, because I want to also 
kind of make that clear to folks because I think um, the general public doesn't understand what FEMA does. And so public assistance, what we do, happens two or three, we, we get there a month, I mean, it could be a week after, but a month to two months after, and then we begin to assess damage. Damage is already being assessed before we get there, but then we understand policy and how it applies. So we're applying the laws, regulations, and policies to funding and trying to understand all of that. And the communities are still very much devastated when we get there. And that continues, again, I don't think people realize, but the recovery process that we're a part of goes on for years. And in Northridge, it, um, there were things that were still going on in very active states at the 10-year mark, at the 14-year mark, and, and all, um, where there's still a whole lot of paperwork being done and uh, rebuilding and all. And so that is very distinctive public assistance, moving those funds from uh, through our government systems and into some private nonprofits that qualify from your work, which is individual assistance, which um, I think you segued, you said from working at the Red Cross to then working for FEMA in individual assistance. And could yeah. you just kind of clarify that? Because um, sure. it, it's useful to me too. It's a whole other part of the work. Well, um, yeah, I had been working in Red Cross and I, I think I told you our emergency manager at the time, because I was also volunteering with the community to do exercises and response and things like that and he said well if you if you like this so much why don't you get a degree in it and I said there's a degree in it so I I ended up and went back to school and then moved my kids down to Denton to the University of North Texas for a year and got a degree in emergency management yay yeah. so now wow. I do casework but <laughs> but basically the, the individual assistance is when FEMA comes in and attempts at FEMA. One of the big things that FEMA is, is a coordinator uh, under the national right. response plan. I think there's like 17 different government agencies that can respond to a disaster like the um, Corps of Engineers and, mm -hmm. and HUD and, you know, Food, food agencies, my mind just went blank. I know, but, mine too, but <laughs> yes, it, like the, and we interface, uh, small business, um, mm -hmm. like yes, there's a lot. Small business administration. Yeah, there's a lot of different coordination happening between mm -hmm. all the different agencies. Yeah. Yeah, so, so when we go out and do individual assistance, what happens is people who have been affected by the disaster come in and apply for FEMA assistance. And FEMA can, depending on the disaster declaration and what they decide to cover, they can cover anything from rental assistance to home repair and disaster unemployment assistance, medical assistance, medical equipment replacement. I mean, there's just, depending on the disaster, because the state often decides what some of the things are that they'll pay for. Um, so we help them basically apply the paperwork uh, document everything that we need to have documented and try to get them the assistance that, as quickly as possible. You um, uh, you said when we were talking uh, that you were at the fires, I think in your role um, in individual assistance for mm -hmm. FEMA as a, as a reservist, and um, you were uh, sitting in a parking lot and um, there were lots of other people like you sitting in the parking lot. So basically kind of pop-up tent kind of, is that what right. we should picture? Is yeah. FEMA actually has RVs that are fitted out to be um, disaster coordination sites, mobile sites. So they have like the satellite 
connections and they have computer setups and things like that generator so yeah we were at the parking lot in walmart and chico and the people from paradise and from Magalia that had been in the campfire were coming to us and uh, signing up and, and most of the time after a disaster people come in and they say they told me to apply for fema what do you do right. you know <laughs> they, do, they right. really don't know and so that's what we do basically is we help them and uh just by getting their paperwork together and making sure it's correct so they don't keep getting messages that say you're not you know you can't get any assistance so yeah and i think people um in general in the public who have not been through a disaster don't recognize how disruptive a disaster is and how little like it it even with the list of things that you said is supplied or could be supplied depending on what the local jurisdiction, the state, the and FEMA are all agreeing to together. Um, even with that and the other agencies that might or might not be showing up, uh, most people don't get the help that feels satisfying to them. That it's not a situation where someone after a disaster says, wow, I just got all the help that I needed and all of that came together for me. Would you say in general that that's sort of the experience of individuals? Actually, because FEMA lets the insurance companies do their thing for people who have insurance, um, a lot of the folks that we get that don't that aren't insured are very low income and and so if they get any assistance at all from the government, they're just ecstatic. They really are. Mm-hmm. And I know I've you were t- talking about. Uh, in your book about a chicken coop that someone was living in and we had a woman who was living with her two young children she was a she was an immigrant who was not documented so she was undocumented Mm -hmm. (laughs) and she had her mother with her and the people had not cleaned up the chicken coop they just said you can live there Mm -hmm. and uh, basically it was like a uh, human trafficking situation oh so we ended up and managed to get, find a place for her to go where mm-hmm. she didn't have to worry about being accompanied every time she went somewhere. And is that part of your formal role, role with you no. or is that your heart? Yeah, no. I had a feeling, Kate. Although we do, we do train on different kinds of uh, immigrant visas and uh-huh. human trafficking now. Uh-huh. So. Oh, cool. Yeah important part that gets exposed again. I mean, that's one of the things I talk about in the book is how disaster sort of pulls back the veneer of a community and you see things that you wouldn't normally see become mm-hmm. aware. And um, yeah, the chicken coop story was, uh, that was my, uh, my dad um, when he moved from Kansas during the, um, the dust bowl uh, with his family. So they had to leave the family farm and they came to California that the place they could live was a converted, um, chicken coop. I think it was clean, but, um, it was a chicken coop, you know? Yeah. 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 Well, when you, when there's no housing, any housing right. works. Yeah. Well, and peace work, um, you know, just whatever work you can find. And that was mm-hmm. for my family, that was agricultural. And that is often the case here in California, at least, and uh, probably the Texas and other uh, border states where our, so much of our essential infrastructure and the hard work in the fields is accomplished by um, immigrant communities. So. Yeah. 
and and a lot of times, especially in the last administ this administration, people are very afraid to come and help mm -hmm. us ask for help, which we can give them legally uh, in individual assistance. If they have a minor in the house that's a citizen of the United States. Mm -hmm then we can assist the household. Hmm. We register the child because we can't register non-citizens. And then the parent is a co-registrant. But now they're afraid to come in for fear that somebody will come and take them. Hmm. So um, the last time I was in California at the campfire, we had we had a lot of immigrants come in that were like, I don't think I can help you. And unfortunately, because FEMA used to be able to say, well, we don't talk to INS. We don't mm -hmm. turn your information over, but now we do. So uh, we have to tell them, you know, yeah, you'll you'll be taking a chance. So uh, it's up to you to decide. Which is, um, it, it's so hard because for me, from my perspective, when we prioritize that instead of the good of the local community, um, we we really compromise a recovery. So that, that that's been our lessons learned over the years and it's if you haven't had all the different experiences it's hard to make a case but that's I really believe that we need holistic recovery at the community right. level and that that is for everyone who's um, present and I also believe that compassion wins the day that 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 being those kinds of people during a disaster, those kinds of Americans during a disaster actually builds up and strengthens our resilience right. overall. And and that's the thing that really irritates me about this situation with immigrants is because, mm -hmm. because the parents are afraid that they'll be deported, there's an American citizen who's not getting federal assistance they're entitled mm -hmm. to, even if he's four years old, mm -hmm. that the parents... Yeah you know, that the family could survive on. And uh, I think that's tragic myself. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Vulnerability um, matters to all of us. So there's a, there, again, just a very holistic view you get when you um, are part of um, trying to help a community put itself back together. Mm -hmm. And I've seen that time and again. So, um, uh, so back to the parking lot, just for, um, <laughs> just for the imagery of it okay. all is, yeah, just the, like more stories from the, from the so, edge. Well, one of the things that my friend, I was working with a lady named, um, Liz, who has done some of our, Liz Root, she's done some of our podcasts about immediate emergency housing, because what happened at the campfire was, the entire community was burned. Paradise was completely burned. Most of Magalia was burned. And um, people of different income levels were all having to try to find housing. And a lot of people were actually living in the Walmart parking lot for a month. And this happened, happened in October. It was cold when we got there, I know. And so FEMA has a, an assistance program where they bring in mobile homes for temporary shelter. Yeah. But that doesn't come in for at least a month after the disaster right. happens. Yeah. And so what we've been talking about, Liz and I, is trying to find some way for the people that are in the Walmart parking lot for a month, sleeping on the ground or in tents or in their cars, to have a, plate, to have a way to get 
into some kind of safe and secure housing so that uh, in before that month passes, mm -hmm. like uh, hopefully like within a week would be really, really good. And we did interview the CEO of a company called Boxable. Mm. And uh, we'll be having that. That'll be our next podcast. And then you'll be there after that. Cool. But um, they have a system oh. that you can you can load two houses on a trailer, drive it in. You have a little crane that takes it off that comes that they provide for you. Mm -hmm. And then you kind of unfold it into a uh, two, 400 square foot home. And it comes mm -hmm. with a with a kitchen and a bathroom and you know refrigerator microwave stove everything wow and sleeping and it's and it's uh, flexible enough to where you can use it for offices or dormitories or or whatever it is that you need but especially with covid but even before covid when the red cross or whoever's doing mass care sets up a, a mass shelter it's literally a mass shelter there right. all the beds are in one room Right. And all the people are sleeping on these cots and people who are, who have anxiety issues or who have PTSD or have other mental health issues or, mm -hmm. or they have physical health issues, right. people with children. I know if right. I took Women, and taken yeah. my small children into a shelter like that, I would not have been able to sleep because I can't watch them while I'm asleep right. and make sure that nobody's going to yeah. bother them. Yeah. And so, yeah, that's it. That mass shelter yeah. thing and and especially and for women and children is just right. a very hazardous sort of it really is and then yeah. on top of that if you get if there's a cold or a virus or something running through the community it it burns through a shelter yeah. like that yeah so uh yeah there's right. a and then, I mean, and then this is one of the reasons that I talk about um, we need to see the sphere around each issue, that when we only have um, two sides, when we think that there's only two sides to an issue, like should we do individual um, transitional housing or should we do mass shelter, you know, like um, we don't end up at all the, 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 with all the wisdom that we need to make those kinds of decisions because, mm -hmm. um there are a lot of factors. And once you set up transitional shelter, then you're going to have real estate issues like, okay, if we do that on the Walmart parking lot, then what? And, you know, those are things that public assistance often is kind of looking at down the road is like, okay, now how are these laws funding people's rights, you know, owner's rights versus, you know, how are all of these things coming together around this one issue and what do we do next? Um, but it would be so great to have a vision that is larger and, and more encompassing to start with. And I would say informed by compassion, because I really think that without compassion, there isn't the kind of wisdom we need. I think if we don't prioritize human values, you know, mm -hmm. like Kate and I would say our hearts, like what we think <laughs> is important as people, mm -hmm. um, that um, that other things do get in the way of that um uh power brokering greed like mm. different things can turf. come in yeah yes. turf. Yeah. yeah yeah um the, well you know and in in a government structure there's not there's not room for compassion there's rules right. and regulations and and we and, need those yeah but i know that um at that at that same fire we had a woman who had ms who came in um she had been sleeping in her car and behind 
the Kmart or some in Chico or I'm I'm sorry I don't remember where it was but anyway she'd been sleeping been in her a car. lot of disasters yeah <laughs> and because her car burned she came in and tried to get assistance because she'd lost her housing mm-hmm. but we didn't have any regulations or rules under which we could assist her mm-hmm. with anything um, because the car wasn't drivable uh, well to do assistance for a car it needs to be registered licensed and insured Mm -hmm. and because her car wasn't moving it was none of those things and so we couldn't assist her at all with that yeah yeah policy you know all of that stuff doesn't adapt quickly and the very nature of disaster is always new conditions always like like the car I mean that might happen in many disasters people who have lived in their cars now losing them because of storm surge or in this case a fire whatever Mm -hmm. but um, the 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 system doesn't adapt to be compassionate, and even if our policies are informed by compassion, I, we just need to continue to dialogue and work around these issues. One of the things I loved about what you said about your parking lot um, when you mentioned that you were, um, oh yeah, I've been to California a bunch uh, for different <laughs> fires, <laughs> and the the. the the visual of the parking lot that I thought was so great was that you said you went around, you like to be one-stop shopping. Not that, not that FEMA necessarily thinks of itself that way as a, as a unit, but, um, or maybe they do, I don't know in IA, but Mm. (laughs) yeah, but I really think it, it depends how we inhabit the jobs we've been given. And in your case, the way that you inhabit the job that you've, you know, and doing it with integrity and fortitude and, you know, all the things that, that meet the, the requirements of the description that you're supposed to be fulfilling, you've also layered in there going around and talking to other, um, other entities, finding out who showed up at this disaster, what are they offering, who could I refer people to, and that kind of holistic, again, um, uh, compassionate uh, work. Um, Graham and I were saying, um, and in fact, I wanted to ask you, is there such a thing in individual assistance that would be an information broker? Not a, not a system, you know, not a big old computer system, because that's the other thing is we don't have, we like people don't usually have access to Wi-Fi or their computers in a disaster, you know, they've, you know, mm-hmm. fire often. Yeah. In any well, disaster, that's often a, a difficulty. Well, a lot of the times, because what we generally do in the field, because that's where I prefer to work is in the field, yeah. working with people who actually have ha- have the issues. Um, we kind of have a background network. I think um, there's, there's agencies that are usually at every disaster. Right. right. And when yeah. they set up our, usually they set up a, a place where it is a one-stop shop. People can come in and, and talk to right. us and talk uh-huh. to SBA and Red Cross and whoever else right. is there. And um, but, but we try to get together and figure out who's doing what. And then we talk to the local leaders and ask what the community has available. Because a lot of times they'll be, if they're not on site, we don't know what they're doing. Right. And so... Um, I know that in a lot of places they try to give us a list and contact information and some places we just have to find out for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I, I, I've seen that at different, um, in Louisiana, the FEMA um, uh, individual assistance was still all set up at, um, I, I think, big uh, warehouse studio uh, space. Mm-hmm. I don't know, in Baton Rouge, were you, I don't know if you were there, because um, I know uh, yeah, there's different locations. Rouge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and then again, back to public assistance, we're not even on site together. And I think sometimes people imagine that a disaster response is a lot more coordinated within house than it is. Mm-hmm. And, well, we have our own yeah. public assistance part. Representative. Of the, yeah. And yeah. so we do have them there usually on yeah. the same site. Yeah. But at the joint field office where we are, um, there, and we also have IA people, but they're not necessarily individual assistance folks, but they're not necessarily all plugged in all the way through, you know, right. like a zipper where it's like every single piece is coordinated and right. stacked together. Yeah. So, well, so basically know, the conversation is the hope that going forward will be more so, right? Right. Well, and, and of course, when you, I don't know if this is your experience, but when I get to a disaster, everything is it's all ad hoc, everything. And it's confused. And you may end up And when I went to Sandy, I was there for four days before they put me to work. And I had to call in every day because every day they'd say, oh, we forgot you were there. Where are you? Right. I know. (laughs) Yes. And uh, so, yeah, it's like, that's why they call it a disaster. As far as I'm concerned, you go, when I go to work, there's obviously a disaster happening and and we have to get organized enough to address it. So, yeah. Well, and, and get telecom and all of the different things. Like we've had calls from friends, you know, going, you know, where we're checking in, how you doing and how's it going and only to find out that they can call us and talk to us, but they don't know what's going on on the ground where they are because they right. can't seem to, they can't seem to get a hold of the right people. So, well, and that's, you know, and going back to um, the ind- the people who have been, in the disaster, yeah. One of our co one of our co um, hosts is lives in California. He lives in Sebastopol, and his name is John Harrell. Hmm. And I heard that podcast. Yeah, he. Um, we did the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco. Oh, okay. And okay. We also did we did the campfire because oh. I was out there with him, but um, he called me during the last fire that was n- near Santa Rosa. Because he had to evacuate from Sebastopol, and he wasn't getting any information. So he wanted to get out of the highway where the, the fire was off to the left. Wow. He could see it, and the, and the traffic was slowed down to a standstill. And so what ended up and happened was he called me, and he says, can you get information for me? Mm-hmm. And so I, I looked at the CAL FIRE maps. I looked at the, what was going on there, and I would text him what's going on and, and where and what was closed and what wasn't. And we managed to get him out of the area. But um, just having communication during the response phase of a disaster is difficult. Very difficult. Yeah. And can be helped, again, with laws that sort of begin to look at the the strength of cell towers, for instance. Or yes. Yeah. I mean, there's so many cell, other components. Cell towers yeah. burn. Cell towers yeah. Yeah. They burn, they blow over, and people and people rely on their their GPS on their phone. Right. To, yes. And if they can't get a connection to that GPS, that people don't use maps anymore. Right. Yeah, they don't I have know. them in their glove box like we used <laughs> right. to. Right. right. 
Yeah, and mm. I, I talked to a guy who, who works for FEMA out there in Region 9, and he's in communications mostly. But he was saying that his daughter was driving with him somewhere, and she was doing the GPS, and it took him to a dock that went out in the ocean. She goes, we need to turn right. And he said, there is no right. So he pulled out his map. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Got them where they needed to go. um, I'm just noticing with the time that we are getting close to your your time limit that you have. I so enjoy talking with you, Kate. And I learn so much every time. Me too. um, uh, and I didn't know, I want to say for your listeners, I didn't know about Disaster Tales until uh, Kate reached out to me and um, and asked me to do this. And so now that I'm, I'm going through your podcast as, um, as fast as I can to learn the different things that you know that I don't. Um, <laughs> and um, I so appreciate that you're reading my book and perhaps oh, you're doing yes. the same, learning Excellent. I am. other yeah. sides of things that mm-hmm. y- you didn't know. Um, yeah, and I would really encourage anyone interested in disaster, young people interested in disaster, to um, consider an education that would put you kind of in uh, Kate's camp of understanding the history of disaster and uh, how, like, just the way you could pull out the date for the, the Stafford Act, uh, 1974, <laughs> did you say? Like, so the, as amended, yes. <laughs> yes, as amended. Um, so the... Um, the many different components uh, and, and so that we would have wise and compassionate leaders um, in the future. Yeah, that, that would be excellent. Yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely turn people who are interested in being helpers in helping humanity into yeah. learning about disasters and how to deal with them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and at every well, level, yeah. yeah. That's right. Well, thank you very much. Yes. We really appreciate your being with us, and I hope we'll be able to do this again because there's still a lot more that we could be talking about. So, Yeah, I would enjoy that. Okay. Thanks so much. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. Please feel free to give us a rating. We'd be happy to know what you think. If you have a disaster tale you'd like to share, you can send it to us at kate at disastertales.com. Today's disaster tip is from the Ultimate Worst Case Scenario Survival Handbook by David Borsenicht, Joshua Piven, and Ben H. Winters. Years ago, I was driving my Pinto out in the country when suddenly a bull jumped a fence and charged my car. Yes, it really happened. So here's how to escape from a charging bull. Do not antagonize the bull and do not move. Bulls will generally leave humans alone unless they become angry. Two, look around for a safe haven, an escape route, cover, or high ground. Running away is not likely to help unless you find an open door, a fence to jump, or another safe haven. Bulls can easily outrun humans. If you can reach a safe spot, make a run for it. Three, if safe haven is not available, remove your shirt, hat, or other article of clothing. This is used to distract the bull. It doesn't matter what color the clothing is. Despite the colors that bullfighters traditionally use, bulls do not naturally head for red. They react to and move towards movement, not color. Four, if the bull charges, remain still and then throw your shirt or hat away from you. The bull should head towards the object that you throw him. Or maybe not.